stand firm against any and all arbitrary authority that threatens the personal sovereignty of one or all. That which will not bend must break, and that which can be destroyed by truth should never be spared its demise. It is done. Hail Satan. That's right, Belial. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Satanic Study Hall Class is in fucking session. Class is in session, heathens. Hey. Yo. What's going on, everybody? Not shit. Ain't shit. Belial said ain't shit. It's, it's one of those weeks. We're going to transition to seasons here. The weather's getting a little better. People are getting their vaccines, hopefully. I'm scheduled for Wednesday. A lot, of, a lot of my new coworkers, it's kind of like the thing that you overhear now, like when you're just sitting in your space doing your work, when you hear your coworkers kind of over talking, all it is is about the vaccine. And it's just like, you know what, old people, go get your vaccines. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait out this rush period because I'm young and healthy and I can. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And definitely wait your turn. I know there are a lot of people cutting corners and shit. But yeah, let like, some high-risk people get them first, guys. Can we Can we really? I mean, like, I know people, and I've talked to them, like, in my everyday life, they're lying um, on the website or whatever they're going to, to to get a rush on these vaccines. And I mean, like, can we let some high-risk people get them first? I don't Two know. words, people. Hail science. Yes, hail science. And I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it was on an episode or if it was on a Patreon, but there have also been some unfortunate stories of, you know, vaccination sites sitting fucking empty because of, you know, certain restrictions and um, stuff like that and poor management when it comes to governments. But yeah, just wait your turn, but you know, get that shit and hail science. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of work with the best information available. And I believe that's these vaccines right now. So plus I want to go to fucking Mexico. I'm sorry. I go to Cancun as often as possible. Got a little spot down there. I didn't know that about you. Yes, I. I got a spot. It's my. Just, Why are you holding out on us, man? What the hell? Well, let's go. Let's go. I mean, I don't have a. I don't own a spot, but I have a spot that I go to He's all the time. He's got like a favorite got, spot on the beach. That's like, his spot. He, like, he has his palm tree. It's not on the beach. No, I have a resort. No, he oh, owns you're right. It. It's like a ten by ten no, square not, patch of you, sand. You were absolutely right. I have a favorite jet ski rental spot down on the beach. You know, what I, I have a favorite guy to buy weed off of as soon as this you get the off the resort property. Thing I knew nothing about this. What the. Don't make you hold out. So I had a I had a favorite meat stick guy down in um down in in Puerto Rico. Literally, my my now ex girlfriend and I went down. You have a meat stick guy. Yes. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) When when I I went down with my now ex girlfriend for a few days. Al has a meat stick guy. (laughs) Dude, yes. No, no, it was stick meat. It was stick meat. Stick meat. Okay. There was some right, dude. Stick, he was, stick meat yes, sounds he was, better. He was a, a vendor on the beach, 
And he was had like I don't know like it was like like chicken or or beef or whatever, and like just he would like grill it up and on his little like portable cart and stuff. So every time I saw him, he yelled "steak meat!" like every day. Every time we went out on the beach, it was and he'd awesome. Yell "Father Al!" back at you. No, I, that was that was before, no, before the dark that was times. Before all of this, probably just threw a stick meat at him every time he yelled that shit. <laughs> I never yelled it at him, but I, I mentioned it I'm to my then girlfriend. Little flying pieces of uh, fucking I'll kebab tell you, meat. Stick was come fucking awesome. There They're are like, whole aspects of, of all three of you that I have not. I'm so fucking. Yeah, yeah, no Mexico here. here. Yeah. Mexico happened by accident. Like, you know, there was like a reward oh. system or a president's club somewhere where I, I thought used maybe to work like and, you're driving near the border and got lost and wound up. He said it was an accident. No, I mean, maybe my early 20s, that could have been a possibility. But no, uh, as far as the vacation spot, it was just I found a tranquil spot. Like in Riviera Maya, that's not, you know what I mean? That's, it's a resort, but it's also like, there's plenty of fucking space to make your own. Like anywhere you can make your own little, like 30 foot little radius of just get the fuck out of my bubble space. It's great. No, I hear you. I totally relate. I don't need to talk about West Virginia again, but can I talk about West Virginia? No, please not again. Even Belial doesn't want to hear about West Virginia. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. You have your weed guy in Cancun. You have your stick meat guy in wherever the fuck you go. Puerto Rico. And I have my Mormon's house in West Virginia. This house was owned by Uh a Mormon, and it was right on a river. I think his Airbnb is called Heaven on a River. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And uh, you know what? That's my thing in West Virginia. So. Heaven on a river. I've got a, I've got a place in the mountains in South Carolina. What's it called? Yeah. What do you call it? I'm, well, I'm in I'm in I'm right outside Greenville, in in uh, Marietta. Does it have a name though? Like, have you have you named it? Oh no. Do no, they I sell, do they sell meat sticks? <laughs> stick me. No. Stick me. Stick me. <laughs> and do they have weed? <laughs> They did have a mill there that made one of the pieces for the Moonlander. Man, I feel like there's an episode of King of the Hill. Like, we're all just sitting out in front on the sidewalk, (laughs) drinking a beer, talking about times past. Like, what the fuck? I feel like it's an episode of of Letterkenny. Yeah, right? Seriously, we're out in front of the produce stand. Fucking Texas size 10-4. It's good because soon I'm about to say, how are you now? Um, But we're not quite there yet. We're actually almost eight minutes into this, and we haven't even done our little intro spiel. Holy shit. Um, Yeah, so let's get that out of the way. Um, Welcome, everybody. (laughs) This to another episode of Satanic Study Hall. This is a really cool fucking episode that we have going on. Um, Very proud of this episode and our guests that put a lot of time into working together to make this happen. Um, Classes in session, as we said before. Uh, My name is Bill. I'm a member of the Satanic Temple. I am also a member of Love City Satanist. And today I am joined by whoever wants to speak next. Go, Veronica. I am Veronica, the valedictorian, sometimes the smartest person in the room. Um, and I am heavily aligned with the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple. I am Father Al, bless you, my children, and I am also a member of the Satanic Temple. I am Dennis Morningstar, and I'm a member of the Satanic Temple. And if you want to get in touch with Satanic Study Hall, uh, there's many ways to do so. Uh, later in the episode, we will talk about how to get in touch with us on social media. But the quickest way to get our attention is through satanicstudyhall at gmail.com. That is our direct email address that is checked multiple times a fucking day. 
there's also a way to consider to support um, this group of heathens that you're listening to today. And that is at patreon.com slash satanic study hall, where we have three tiers, 333, 666, and $20 a month. And there are various, uh, what did I say before, Veronica? Advancing advantages. Advancing advantages. As you progress through those tiers. And we'll talk more about that later as well. Uh, and if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, you can also review us. Uh, give us, um, you know, one, two, three, four, five star review. And let us know what you think. So, Father Al, how are you now? I am doing great. I had so much crazy shit going on in my life. But it's all good stuff. Um Getting vaccinated on Wednesday. Had a um, <clears throat> fun time watching a couple of Daz, God's Not Dead films for, uh, for Pure Flix. And then I tried to cancel my subscription and it kept coming up with an error message. An error message? <laughs> what do you mean an error message? Like, like we're sorry, but you can't. Like a, divi- like a divine intervention error message. <laughs> no, first, before, before before I ask this next question or, or make this next statement, I just want to make sure everyone knows what Pure Flix is. Uh, Pure Flix is the Christian Netflix. So I guess what Hell's trying to say is it wouldn't let you cancel your free subscription. No, it wouldn't. No, well. So I guess. Once you go God, you never go God. <laughs> I guess Jesus didn't want you. To cancel your member, maybe maybe there's still more content for you to watch. Hey, maybe Pure Flix isn't maybe Pure Flix isn't done with you yet. Hey, as no, far as I'm God, concerned, God is done with you. He says you still have hope. As far as I'm concerned, if a tree and nails can cancel Jesus, I can cancel Pure Flix. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. But yeah, PureFlix. Um, PureFlix is actually, you know, they're going to be, they're expanding their viewership from the news that I've been reading. But yeah, PureFlix is going to be the topic of one of the next two AV car episodes. Now, what were the movies that we did for the first episode? Can, I'm just going to put anybody on the spot. Feel free to speak up. We had The Witch. The Witch, yes. The the Vivid Witch. The Vivid The Vivid The Vivid Witch. And then what else did we do? We summon the darkness. Oh, Father Al. Boom. Right there. It's only because we edited out a whole bunch of bullshit where you forgot the name of the movie. Yeah, you got that um, one. On- <laughs> Thank you, Glenda. You got that on the first try. Yes. Well so done. So it appears. <laughs> yes. Al was just snappy. The power of editing in Google. So hashtag canceled then this morning star. How, you, how are you now? I'm, uh, I'm all right. Um, haven't been doing much other than um, shit. What I have I been doing? I haven't been doing much. What the fuck I was doing? I don't remember what I've done this week. So yeah. Veronica, how are you now? Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, a week thing. I, I guess I went to the beach the earliest in the year that I've ever been to the beach. It wasn't my decision, but it ended up happening. It was really it was a nice day. It was a little bit chilly still, because we're still in like the beginning of spring. Um, but it was really nice. I love the beach, so that was great. Uh as far as the whole how are you now thing, no, nah, things are good. Trying to keep the mind right. And uh, with that comes um, clarity. Is that the word I'm thinking of? Clarity. Um, And then kind of apply that to as many aspects of your life as you can before you break down and have to start all over again. But no, that's where I'm at. Things are good. Um, We're walking and we're walking and rolling on a good schedule with Satanic Study Hall. The uh, little crotch goblins I have are are doing okay, um, progressing in school. And that's, I guess, that's all that matters, right? All right. And moving forward. So, 
what is Satanic Study Hall? Satanic Study Hall is a podcast where we explore Satanism and whatever the fuck we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. Um, I don't know how that happened, but we just kind of run with things here and try to keep our, you know, the noise down so we don't get fucking screamed at by the teacher. Uh, anyways, um, so yeah, we talk about Satanism from its inception to modern day. We uh, talk about um, satanic related news, uh, music, movies, books, entertainment, pop culture type shit. Uh, what's going on with the satanic temple, uh, other avenues of Satanism that we're going to start exploring, which I think we will officially dub season three as we explore what's going on in other satanic beliefs when it comes to Luciferianism or church of Satan, or, you know, we'll talk about, uh, different groups that are out there like global order of Satan over in the United Kingdom and, uh, just things people are doing in the overall satanic community. Um, and then we're also going to be doing a lot more book reviews, music reviews, and trying to do a little bit more of a deep dive um, into some of the history. And I'm excited about that. Uh, other things that we have going on with Satanic Study Hall is we have a musical journey that's coming out after this episode, um, sh- very shortly after this episode. And that's with John Russon III from the mm-hmm. band Carfax Abbey. Uh, Carfax Abbey was very huge in the Philadelphia goth industrial scene, and we're really excited to get that episode out for everybody to hear. Johnny worked super hard on that. Uh, and by the way, hail Johnny. Uh, he's, hail Johnny. He's, he's taking care Johnny. of some shit right now, uh, but Johnny will be back in class. Um, he is on one of those weird little leaves of absence things. I don't know. Principal Pan was trying to explain it to me, but I don't care about the fucking technicalities. I just want to make sure Johnny's good, and Johnny is good. Um, what else? Uh, someone else, I've been talking long enough. So Veronica, I'm going to pass this to you. Can you tell me about art room and what goes on in the art room that we have on our discord goat farm community? Yes, I can. I can talk about that a little bit. So, um, the art room is something we have on our discord community. Admittedly enough, the only thing on discord that I know how to do because I'm a grandmother with technology, but, um, twice a week we get on usually Tuesdays or Wednesdays, depending on my schedule. Um, but it's usually Tuesdays and Sundays. Ideally, the whole concept of this was to kind of open back up a space like a coffee house where you'd be able to go to read or draw or whatever you you like to do while you, you know, ate your bagel and drank your coffee. Um, There's also a friend of mine, a good friend of mine at this point, who um, helped me kind of launch this concept, uh, who used to draw in the pubs that he used to go to in Houston. So it's just this space. It's this nice little satanic space we have on Discord where we chill and make art. And that includes anything from jewelry making to sketching to um, you know, I, we haven't had anybody. So we've had a, an amazing girl, Melissa. Thank you so much. Who does great Gothic makeup. Um, uh, somebody who works with candle wax. It's just, you can kind of come in and do any creative feat you want to work on that day. It's a little space for you to do that. No obligation to speak or anything, but we do have pretty engaging satanic conversations while we, you know, drink our stuff and do our art. Um, and it's definitely provided me with a lot of, um, kind of escape during my week, like just this nice calm space with my satanic friends where we get together and show each other what we're working on. So um, if that interests you, you know, come pop in Tuesday nights, uh, when uh, not Wednesday, Sunday afternoons. <laughs> but Discord is fucking popping. I hate saying it like that, but it really is like it's so much fun. I hated it in the beginning and it's turned into something um, ridiculously positive, uplifting, and supportive. If you want an invite and you want to check it out, hit any one of us up on social media. You know, the goat farm is still going on on Facebook. 
but we've talked about that before and there's nothing really else to say outside of you can join up there there's people that are still participating but overall we're we're looking forward to everybody to really you know try to give discord a shot um because that's where the bulk and the majority of you know the you know the online community that we're trying to grow uh is happening so we talked about the upcoming music related content that we have other episodes that are coming up we thought we said we're doing the av cart peer flicks um, we're doing anything for Jackson and the cleansing hour. Gosh, what else do we have coming up? Oh, general, Butt naked, uh, general, Butt naked will be out, um, at some point soon. That was a lot of fun to record. So what we're talking about today and who we have in class is La Carmina and Dr. John Scotland. They stopped by and had a fantastic conversation with us. Um, about Japanese Satanism, but how Satanism is uniquely represented in Japan, uh, places to visit in Japan, um, places that are Satan-friendly, and their extensive personal experiences in the Satanic scene. We also talked about uh, La Carmina and John's new TV show, which is on Satanic Temple TV, or TST TV, which is called Satanic Show and Tell. Uh, Show us, I pray thee, thy gory possessions. Now, in this show, you are going to be joining the award-winning goth journalist and TV host, La Carmina, and cultural anthropologist, John Scutland, who are here with us today as they interview notable guests about their unusual satanic possessions. Uh, Lucian Greaves personally invited them to create this show for Satanic Temple TV. Now, in each episode, the prominent guest shows rare devilish objects from art Um, vampire statues to Japanese demon masks and tells the fascinating morbid stories behind them. La Carmina is a dark subcultures expert, an award-winning blogger and journalist, author of three books and TV presenter on networks worldwide. Uh, Travel Channel, Food Network, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic, ABC, and many more. Her leading La Carmina blog, lacarmina.com slash blog, focuses on Japanese goth culture, satanic culture, and won the Best Blog of the Year Award in 2017. She is especially known for her reports on modern Satanism in Japan and worldwide, including the Satanic Temple London Disco Party and the Satanic Temple Salem Art Gallery. La Carmina has worked as an on-camera host and local producer for TV shows worldwide. Credits include NBC, Better Late Than Never, Kawaii TV, Discovery, Oddities, National Geographic, Taboo in Rome, uh, the Food Network, World's Weirdest Restaurants. We'll talk some of that about that in our interview. Uh, Travel Channel, uh, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Andrew Zimmern. No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain promo and Could I Live There? Um, the Purge TV with Blumhouse, The Doctors, The Today Show on CNN, ABC Nightline, and the list goes on. Not to mention international networks, Canal Plus, uh, Norway TV. Uh, in addition to her extensive online and blog following, La Carmina published three books and writes for various publications, including CNN, Yahoo, Business Insider, and Sunday Times. That is a hell of a decorated resume right there. I am fucking jealous. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is pretty impressive. Yeah, she's hot. Yes, <laughs> that is fucking amazing. Um, hail La Carmina. Hail La Carmina. Hail La Carmina. We are also being joined by Dr. John Scutland. Uh, Dr. John Scutland holds a doctorate in Japanese studies and has written about Japanese manifestations of goth subculture as well as body modification and tattooing in Japan from an anthropological perspective. His studies have delved into modern Satanism and its various incarnations. 
He is fluent in Japanese, has researched Japan on the university level for a full decade, and spent almost six years living in Japan, exploring its darker sides. Now, I know I had a fucking pretty cool time um, in the conversation and the interview that we had with the two of them. So without wasting any more time, we had a fantastic time doing this interview. Uh, Let's get right to it. So um, here we go. This is our conversation with La Carmina and Dr. John Scotland. Enjoy. Hail Satan. (laughs) All right, degenerates, it is time to get into the main topic of the day. And here in study hall, like we mentioned, we are joined by La Carmina and Dr. John Scutland. Um, we've put their inter- their bios and their descriptions and uh, all the cool shit that they're involved with um, out there numerous times already as we've teased uh, this awesome conversation. So we're not going to waste any more time and we're going to get right to it. Welcome, both of you. It's great to have you here on study hall. Thank you. Great to be here. So we're going to get right to it. And the first group of questions belong to Veronica. So uh, here we go. Okay. This is specifically for La Carmina. Um, what was childhood like for you? Where did you grow up? And do you did you move around a lot growing up? Uh, I never moved around a lot, but I traveled a lot with my family. My parents are both from Hong Kong. And I was born and I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. But every summer, pretty much, we would fly to Hong Kong to see relatives. And we would also bounce around to nearby countries, particularly Japan, but also places like Thailand and Korea. So from a young age, travel had been a big part of my life. That's really cool. Was it just primarily Asia when you were a kid or was there like a few cool like side places you got to go to in that time or? Yeah, well, fortunately, my family really enjoyed travel. So throughout my childhood, I was able to go to quite a few countries in Asia, but also hit up big cities in the States and in Canada, such as New York City, L.A., Montreal. We also went to London, Paris, went a little bit around Europe, uh, a bit in the Caribbean. So really quite around. That was always a passion that everybody in the family had. And it's kind of cool that it's something I continue to do today. Yeah, it's totally cool. I wish (laughs) I'm not a very experienced traveler as the boys know I've been to West Virginia. Um, (laughs) That's almost it. Um, Just up and down my time zone. But that's there's nothing wrong with that. You're you're, you're starting. You're beginning your your journey. Yeah, exactly. We pick on her a little bit, but (laughs) she's spreading uh, spreading those satanic wings and getting out there. Just a little. Um, So what was your relationship to religion growing up? Uh, Well, because my family is from Hong Kong, I come from a long line of staunch atheists. (laughs) So there was never any religious influence Um, growing up. Yeah, we kind of looked at religion as something that was a bit bizarre and hard to believe in. It was a little bit difficult to see why religion could be such a part of somebody's life and influence them so much. I'm not going to lie to you. That sounds kind of (laughs) cool. Very um, uh, (laughs) antithetical to what goes on um, around here, but like definitely in the way I grew up, um, very different. I became very like staunch atheist around 13. I feel like that's becoming more and more commonplace here, but um, wow, it's, it's cool to like get in the headspace of someone who's born in an environment where atheism is definitely more commonplace. Um, yeah, that's really- yeah. Also in Canada, you don't have the same strong theocratic influence that you do perhaps in America. So there was that as well. 
But although growing up in the West, you do see the influence there and you see it in the people around you. But for my own family, there was always this reliance on science and reason and rationality. So quite lucky in that sense to have an upbringing like that. Yeah, that is that, that's really cool. I am noticing I mean, I can't speak for the boys, but what I'm noticing more and more is when I talk to not just, you know, Satanists, but people who are interested in satanic culture and any kind of alternative culture. It's either like you come from a stark religious background or secularism was pretty much a part of your entire life. I've, I've yet to find somebody who kind of falls in a gray area. So it is really cool asking people about their religious backgrounds. Um, when were you introduced to Satanism? Hmm. Well, I identified as goth from a pretty young age. Since my teenage years, I was dressing in gothic fashion and trying to sneak into local gothic nightclubs. And I always loved things like horror movies and Halloween growing up. It was something I just naturally gravitated towards. Now, when you're part of the gothic subculture, you invariably get to know people who identify as Satanists or are just very interested in the imagery and the literature. So that was probably my first introduction there. And it's also interesting because I never saw it as something taboo and other or evil. Rather, it was, oh, well, these creative individuals who are my friends in the gothic scene, they are very interested in Satanism. Later on, uh, in the mid-2000s, I spent more time in Japan, living there and writing and doing TV. And John will talk more about this later, but there's a very vibrant satanic scene in Japan that's extremely powerful and unique. So that's something I started diving into and researching more, and it's influenced a lot of what I do. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that, you know specifically uh, Japanese Satanism. I'm really, really excited. Um, but I am just going to expand a little bit. Um, and if it's not relevant, you know, it's not relevant. But as you describe being, you know, getting into goth culture um, at a young age. Now, when you were kind of meeting Satanists in in that culture, did you find that it was more of a levian based Satanism? Or was it just kind of like this uh, love of uh, devil and, you know, alternative, just anything considered satanic imagery? Honestly, it was all across the board. Okay. You have some people who are heavy Church of Satan, LaVey, they read all the books and they really they participate in the rituals and whatnot. And others, especially in Asia, it's more, oh, maybe more about the fashion and an interest in the occult or the imagery Ugh. all across the board. Sweet. <laughs> Great. Um, what was your initial exposure to the Satanic Temple? And do you have a favorite tenant? Ooh. So I started seeing news articles about the Satanic Temple in, say, around 2014 or something. My friends and I, we just loved what they were doing. We think it's brilliant. There are legal approaches to campaign and, and the things that they really resonate with me, the focus on personal autonomy, reproductive rights. So that's something that we've been supporting for a really long time. Very cool. And, and do you have a favorite tenant off of that? Or is it more of like a collective, you know, <laughs> I vibe with them all kind of thing? Uh, well, just because of my upbringing, I love the focus on science and the pursuit of knowledge, yeah, according to the one. best available evidence. To me, that's been something that I've just always been guided by. And I think it's really important and something that we need more and more in this era when yeah, there's definitely. so much fake news. And yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. 
Um, your bio says your mission is to showcase underground and fringe subcultures in a positive light and encourage meaningful, offbeat, compassionate travel. How is your mission going in terms of building your audience and opening people's minds? Well, I guess I started blogging in 2007 and I always wanted to focus on the outsider, people in subcultures, whether it's goth or satanic scenes or punks or people in LGBTQ communities around the world. That's something that I just always thought was important to share and tell in a positive light because there's so much false information out there and demonization of misunderstood groups. From the very beginning, I made that my focus and it's just grown from there. Originally, it was mostly about Japan, but throughout the years, I got more opportunities to travel. So I got to report on things like the punk scene in Myanmar and the third gender in India or the drag queen scene in Israel. It's really fascinating to focus on these creative and courageous people around the world. Yeah, I um, and and expanding off of that, I did listen to a podcast of yours um, where you did say something really interesting that kind of stuck with me. But you said it was um, also kind of a part of this mission and and blogging to um, not portray disturbing subcultures. I think you said something along the lines of uh, talk about and explain like what people consider disturbing subcultures in not just a like not just a positive but a fair light. Um, when you say disturbing, is there something that people think, is there something they think of faster? Like, what do you, what do you mean by like disturbing, like off the top of your head? Like what do people sure, find most there are disturbing? Some things that, mm -hmm. Well, one thing I like to write about is the extreme body modification scene. Okay. That's something that people have quite a visceral reaction to. They might see people with uh, subdermal implants and tons of piercings or doing suspension and they just see this and they have this gut negative reaction or start building a false story about it so with something like that i want to be able to show hey this is where the person is really coming from this is why they're doing what they're doing and there's a lot of positivity and uh, there's so much more than first meets the eye. Right. And when done professionally, you know, it doesn't have to be this necessarily gruesome thing that people um, kind of associate that with off the top of their heads. So you're truly a Renaissance woman in terms of your blogging um, and various ventures in fashion, travel and culture, as well as TV presentation and journalism. Um, what topics and things have you covered that you're most passionate about? I love checking out worldwide cultures, both modern and ancient, and reporting firsthand about them. Anywhere I go, I look for things that are more on the morbid or eerie side. For instance, Egypt was a favorite destination of mine. It was fascinating to go into the tombs and get to know the underground or the uh, underworld mythology and the art. It's just such an incredible place. So I love doing things like that. If I go to a city such as London, I will be checking out the absinthe bars and hanging out in Highgate Cemetery. That's always my focus there. That's another, okay, so another build-off question. But when you find, or specifically when you're like in a new place for the first time, how easy do you find it to kind of happen upon these subcultures? Do you already have contacts by the time you're traveling or do you have to just kind of like seek out cool new weird people to take you to all these places? It's a bit of both. I've been doing this for some time, so I feel like I have a nose for it. And I'm always picking up 
sources here and there from the news and I'll take a little mental note of it. But if I'm going somewhere, I do extensive research in advance and I do reach out to people it's a small world. I always like to say we all hang out in the same circles of hell. So it's been easy to connect with people who identify as Gothic or with underground subcultures in different places. They've always been very open to showing me around, taking me to places that you just cannot find on the internet or on Google Maps. And so I approach it with as much research and preparation as I can. But once I'm there, I am willing to go with the flow and see where it takes me. Has there ever been like a particular place you felt, you know, a little bit like, oh, this is kind of an eerie situation or, you know, I, I had where I was going and who I was with under control. But, you know, like, is, is there something really unexpected or a place you've ever gone to that's particularly unexpected? You know, I think there's a misconception that places around the world are certain places are dangerous, such as Morocco or Egypt or India but that's not the case when you're on the ground. As long as you are not doing anything foolish, such as going out to random neighborhoods alone at night, if you're respectful and you're, um, yeah, just watching your, your belongings and where you are, then nothing dangerous will happen. I've had only the best experiences in countries like that. I always joke that the most scared I've felt were in some American cities where I wandered into the wrong neighborhood. Far more scary than anything I've experienced abroad. I can't disagree with that. <laughs> um, okay, so um, how long have you been blogging? Uh, when exactly did this journey begin? And uh, was law school that boring? <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, that, that comes off of the interview, uh, one of the interviews that we had seen where I think I think you had made reference to like you just needed to do something different and um, and just, you know, you needed to find something that resonated for you. And uh, I, I figured we'd stick that one in there. Yeah, yeah, it was certainly great training. It was overall a rewarding experience, but I'm just not suited to an office job and legal work of that sort. I'm a bit too weird for it, so I'm better suited to something more entrepreneurial and creative. Then in 2007, I started my La Carmina blog. That's a million years ago in internet years, and I really benefited from being an early adopter because at the time, blogs were pretty new, and I put more effort, I think, into the writing and photos than most people who just had a random live journal or zanga. That helped my site take off in the first few years and lead to all the projects that I do today. All right. So I've got one question that I've been dying to ask, Lacrimina. Um, in all of your interesting travels, have you ever been to Modern Toilet in Taiwan? I know they've got like three restaurants. Have you ever heard of it? I have heard of it. Theme restaurants are one of my interests as well. I wrote some articles about it and I wrote a book called Crazy Wacky Theme Restaurants that focuses on these phenomena in Tokyo. But yes, Modern Toilet has a few locations in Asia. I first tried going to the one in Hong Kong, but it closed down. I didn't go to the one in Taiwan, but when I was in Shanghai, I stumbled past one. And of course I had to go in and take some pictures. It's as crazy as you think with it, it would be. It's a poop themed restaurant. So people sit on toilet seats, they eat food that looks like brown swirls, such as ice cream swirls. 
I didn't sit down to have a meal because I figured it'd be pretty crappy, but <laughs> quite an <Whoa>. experience. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I heard about this on the Travel Channel when I started to hear about your, your adventures. I'm like, it popped in my mind. I'm like, I have to ask. So, so thank you. I, I hope to get over there and, and uh, have a crappy experience myself one of these days. <laughs> And out of those theme restaurants, uh, what have been some of your most, I don't know, if you, what's the first one to come to mind? What's been, it's been the most outrageous theme restaurant that comes to mind when you think about it? Oh man, they are over the top. And if people have never experienced one of these, it's not like a hard rock or rainforest cafe. These are total immersive experiences where people dress up in costumes, the decor transports you into a different fantasy universe think your listeners might enjoy Kriston Cafe in Tokyo because it is Jesus themed. They have yeah. actual relics and altars from Europe that they brought in. But because Christianity is not huge in Japan, it's not seen as blasphemous or taboo. It's <laughs> kitsch. They light it up with neon and there's disco balls. You can eat food that's shaped like the Tower of Babel or like a crucifix. Wow, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of fun. I guess I put that up in Philadelphia to get a whole different experience. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly different reaction. <laughs> I don't know. I think we could maybe get away with it. Maybe. We could try. So let me ask one follow-up question. Do you think that um, theme restaurants like that would work in the U.S.? Or would they just be, not necessarily the, the Jesus theme one, but just like modern toilet? Do you see something like, like what you've seen overseas working in the U.S.? I think they've tried to open, well, cat cafes, animal cafes have become more popular worldwide, but there's something about the kitsch and the ability to let go and just go along with the fun that I think is pretty unique to Asia, especially Japan. Some things, they just cross the line in ways that you wouldn't see in the U.S. I did a Food Network show where we visited a maid cafe in Tokyo. So all the waitresses dress in French maid outfits. One of the challenges, people will actually sit down and pay to do this. They will pay to get a disgusting concoction placed in front of them and they are forced to eat or drink it. But if they do not finish, then the maid will slap them across the face as punishment. Oh, that sounds so good. I was actually, yeah. I was, I heard you talk about this on a oh, previous podcast. Bad. I was really interested about it because I think the closest, I don't know, maybe you guys know of more, but themed restaurants that I know of here. I mean, my favorite is um, uh, City Tavern in Philadelphia, which is basically like they still make colonial recipes and they have all the waiters and waitresses and cooks dress up in colonial wear. And I'm a big history nerd. So I'm really, really the closest you get to that around here, are like pop up restaurants like they'll do them in major cities but now uh dennis is going to take us on a, a journey here with dr john scotland um very similar type questions just to kind of get to know john a little bit and uh and we'll go from there dennis it's all you um tell us about yourself uh you know like well you know what's your what's your background what, what are you uh more comfortable with sharing <laughs> that's a that's a tough question what am i not comfortable with sharing there we well, go well, uh, we'll start out with just saying that I have a very different background from La Carmina in that I did grow up in uh, Pennsylvania. So I'm not sure if you would consider that Bible Belt. It's central Pennsylvania. I mean, you've got Lancaster, uh, Amish, so a lot of strong Mennonite presence there. So it was definitely a fundamentalist kind of upbringing in Pennsylvania. So I had that. 
And I considered myself a Christian, but as I got older, uh, the questions just kept piling up and piling up and I just couldn't, uh, you know, it couldn't uh, sustain itself anymore. So I got a little more interested in the occult. I was very interested in a lot of esoteric studies, got into Rosicrucianism, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of OTO, Aleister Crowley, Thelema, that kind of stuff. I studied it. I never really got involved. But in Pittsburgh, uh, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. There was this little shop called Hocus Pocus. I have no idea if it's there anymore. <laughs> Those are my kittens' names. <laughs> oh, Hocus and Pocus. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> the uh, the shop, Hocus Pocus, was run by this couple uh, named Lucian and Callie. And this is no relation to Lucian Greaves, obviously. But uh, Lucian was a man who dressed in, uh, I don't know if you know this brand called Shrine Clothing. Again, I don't know if they exist anymore. But he dressed like a modern day uh, vampire and wore sunglasses and this really thick white uh, foundation and makeup all over him. And he claimed and he showed me his receipt from the doctor that uh or the, the whatever you call it the prescription <laughs> from the doctor that he had an allergy to uv rays and he needed to, to wear this prescription sunscreen <laughs> and couldn't go out in the sunlight so he wore sunglasses all the time indoors uh really interesting guy he used to be part of the oto and he got out of that and actually he said he used to be a levian satanist before that and uh he was just pretty much a practicing pagan but anyway he had this beautiful shop Uh, with a big magic circle painted on the floor and they sold so many interesting things and uh every whenever i had a spare moment i'd be in that shop just hanging out and talking to them and the people who came in there so that kind of started me on that path and then i encountered the satanic bible ironically through a friend at the church i was going to at the time a lutheran church Mm -hmm. and uh and she was an odd one, but she gave a gave me a copy. I read through it and I thought this is a lot of common sense. You know, I could get on board with this, but I don't just just can't really take the plunge into the whole Satan thing yet. You know, I wasn't quite ready to let go of the idea of a higher power. Right. Because uh, the I don't know, it might have even been the romanticism of it. I was into Freemasonry as well. Uh, again, when I say into, I studied it a lot. I researched a lot. So I moved to Japan in 2007, and that was when I really read it again. And the separation, you know, getting away from that uh, theocratic environment and from the influence of, you know, when I was younger, I went to a Christian school, went to church. My family was Christian. Friends were Christian. Everybody was Christian. It's just, you know, that's what you do. And getting away from all that just allowed me to really see things in perspective. Uh, I spent a lot of long lonely nights uh, with more absinthe than I might like to admit, Uh, just kind of, you know, delving into these things and getting to know myself a little bit better. And I kind of discovered myself there deep in the mountains of Japan. And that's kind of the story of how I uh, became a Satanist. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> love me some absinthe, absinthe too. Yeah. The yeah. green fairy. You also love giving other people absinthe. <laughs> I do. Straight out of the bottle. Uh, Dr. Scotland, I want I need a fountain so bad. If you have any suggestions, we can talk offline, but I, I need to get me a fountain. All right. There was a really good website uh, in Japan that I used at the time, but <laughs> love me some absinthe. Oh, yes. <laughs> The Devil's 
Dictionary. Hail Satan and hail Lilith, heathens. Welcome to the return of the Devil's Dictionary. Today's word is subculture. First used in 1886 in reference to bacterial cultures and soon after used to refer to human cultures in 1922. A noun. Definition of subculture. An ethnic regional, economic, or social group exhibiting characteristic patterns of behavior sufficient to distinguish it from others within an embracing culture or society. What are you doing using your big school words? Just use normal people words and I'll understand what you're talking about. Uh, okay, fine. It's a group that breaks off from a group with modified but shared values. Does that make sense? <laughs> Subculture used in a sentence. Satanic Study Hall has developed its own subculture with a unique lingo and diversity of community members. The subcultures of Satanists solidify the substance of our surreal survival. Come on, how many S's is that? Who wrote that? <laughs> Every few years, the theistic world is panicked by Satanic subculture. That's all for this return of the Devil's Dictionary. Special thanks to La Carmina and Dr. John Scutland for stopping by class today. We'll see you next time. Ava Satanus. Now, I mean, this is quick, too, just uh, going off of that for me. But growing up in central PA, like near Lancaster, and you said you had a friend who kind of, you know, said, all right, there's this, there's this Bible. Um, did you find that kind of any authority figure uh growing up around like did they did they catch on to that to that swapping of material were there any like actual you know verbal or reper repercussions to other kids who might have been exploring like alternative religions or or no uh you mean while i was growing up yeah uh, while I was growing up, I mean, I was definitely, I made a conscious decision to be goth, which sounds odd, but I was always interested in, in the dark side of life. Uh, Halloween was my favorite holiday since the time I was like three years old. And uh, I loved reading gothic fiction and horror films. You know, gothic was a big part of my life. And the the music, I, I was sheltered from a lot of the music. Unfortunately, I discovered that much later in life than I should have. But uh, I was interested in things like, say, Rammstein, and which is not goth in any way. But I mean, it certainly has those dark elements to it. And there's those, that industrial aspect, of course, that led me to find other music, uh, of course, you know, Nine Inch Nails and things like that. But uh, yeah, I just kind of discovered it on my own. And I really was a black sheep. Uh, I didn't really have most of the people I looked up to were, uh, for instance, if you're familiar with Malice Miza, which is a Japanese band, uh, the guitarist and leader of that band's name is Mana. He's a crossdresser. He basically coined Gothic Lolita. And he was kind of my role model because was, he was so elegant and he was so gothic and he just kind of epitomized that elegance that I saw lacking around me. Uh, and I kind of escaped into that kind of gothic world. And to me, that had nothing to do with Satanism at the time. Uh, Satanism came a bit later when I was in, in university and really delving into to various occult uh, researches. Okay. So I didn't really have a, a figure that I looked up to uh, in person, other than maybe Lucian and Callie at the Hocus Pocus store. If they're listening, thank you for talking to me those times. <laughs> <laughs>
to actually jump off what she was saying about growing up in uh, Lancaster, a couple different things. How did mm-hmm. you stand growing up being stuck behind them, driving down the road all you know every day? I, I don't think I could do it. Behind the buggies? Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I remember when I was in, uh, this is a random story, like in second grade or something, we were supposed to practice writing a letter to our senators. And I, the letter that I wrote was proposing a special lane for buggies so that we don't have to get stuck behind them. <laughs> That's fucking fantastic. Brilliant. Every time I head that way, we're right here and we're right here in Delco. So I, uh, I, I venture out that way a couple times a year and I always make sure to point them out to the kids because it's almost like they don't believe me. I tell right. them that this is what you'll see and no way, not here. And that, that's oh, see, it makes me happy seeing them every <laughs> once in a while. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I don't have a completely like I don't have a complete, you know, let's live primitively fantasy. But it's just it's it's nice for me to get out there once in a while and just smell the farm air and you know I, I can't smell philadelphia it's when i'm happiest when i can't smell that city so <laughs> when i get out there and i you know veronica i'll take the smell of philadelphia over the horse shit in the from the buggies in lancaster any day all right that's your opinion <laughs> i was gonna say i was gonna say that you spend a lot of time in the chameleon club but it doesn't sound like you were really into the music scene while you were growing up in that area <laughs> Uh, not really. Yeah. Uh, I have been to the chameleon club though, but that was much later. Right. Yeah. I, I've been there a bunch of times growing up. And so I was like, Oh, maybe he, he, he know the place, but I was there once rest in peace. Chameleon club. Is it done? It's done. It's oh, closed. Wow. yeah. It's, it's that's so sad. Yeah. Oh, that, that just ruined my night. Thanks Al. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you need? I'm, I'm here for you. All right, let's get back to it. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, man. I really didn't mean to. I kind of thought you knew. About, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Scotland, um, you know, what was your initial exposure to the Satanic Temple? And 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 like um, Veronica was asking uh, La Cremina, do you have like a favorite tenet or one that you lean towards? Okay, so my exposure to TST was really, I I found it really quickly uh, back in like 2013, just when the first, the very first uh, movements with the the Baphomet and the, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments monument, all of that, that was something that came into my radar very quickly. And I was very interested in it. Like I read this article and I was like, that is hilarious. And I love it. It's perfect. It's like really sticking it to the theocratic institutions. And I just loved everything about it. But to me, it's still at the time, I didn't understand the nuances behind it. To me, it smacked of, of trolling. You know, it smacked of just like using Satanism as a guise. And of course, if you watch, uh, you know, the Hail Satan documentary and you see that initial rally, you hear about how it was, you know, all the things that, uh, well, you know, let's be honest that this the Church of Satan will use as an excuse to discredit TST, uh, the fact that they called it, put a casting call out for Satanists and whatnot. Uh, all that stuff led me to believe that it was just a bunch of really good natured atheists who were kind of using Satanism as a convenient platform to challenge theoretic theocratic encroachments uh, in America. And I loved it, but it just didn't strike me as, as let's say, real Satanism at the time. And it took me quite a while, but uh, the more I read about them, and I think what, one thing that really helped was the book uh, Speak of the Devil. Mm-hmm. And uh, that came out much later, but I 
came to this conclusion beforehand that what they were doing really was authentic. It was just different. You know, it, it didn't have to be the Church of Satan, LeBayan Satanism. Obviously, it owes a lot to that, but it's a very different animal. And I can talk about this a little bit later uh, as we get into what it means to be satanic in Japan. But yeah, that was my exposure. I, I kind of heard of them right from the get-go. And over the years, I gradually came to understand what TST is doing. And uh, it really impresses me. My favorite tenet would probably be uh, three, I believe. So one's body is inviolable and subject to one's own will alone. And that's just because I'm huge into body modification. And uh, a lot of what I researched for my doctorate involved the uh, issue of stigma against tattooing in Japan. For example, tattooing up until very recently was considered medical practice and you could be prosecuted for tattooing someone without being a licensed medical doctor with a doctorate. We were all in the studio literally wow. just talking about that before you guys came on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you knew, I'm sure you all knew that I was going to be asking about that, right? <laughs> yeah. At, at what point did Japanese studies become uh, fascinating to you? Oh, that was, I mean, it's going to sound a bit uh, stereotypical, but it was definitely through the popular culture. And so when I was, I think the first Godzilla movie I saw was when I was three years old. And although I wasn't crazy about Japan, it's just watching those films. I've, I had seen every single one. I had a, I have a VHS collection back home and it's just that exposure, you know, seeing the everyday life scenes in those films kind of like, you know, subliminally, subliminally prepared me for uh, receiving that, you know, that interest in the culture. So say around 1998, you know, Pokemon came out. Mm. This led to this wave of, of Japanese pop culture kind of sweeping over the U.S. and also worldwide. And I was on the very, very beginning of that. And that led me to want to study, uh, you know, Japan more. And of course, it started with the animation and whatnot. But then I quickly got into the music and what is now termed visual K. Uh, like I previously mentioned, Malice Miser, bands like that were very interesting to me. And uh, getting into music, history, everything. I just wanted to know everything about the country and, and live there. So uh, I studied abroad there and I have a total of a full decade of formal studies of Japan. So yeah, I, I think I got to know it pretty well. In your master thesis uh, on Japanese studies, turning uh, goth in, Jap in Japan, you mentioned how goth subculture was introduced to Japan in the 1970s from the UK. What do you think draws the Japanese, usually as seen, um, usually seen as more conservative culture to this more risque subculture? So Japan's kind of a paradox like that. So we have this uh, this image and the idea of Japan that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, which is uh, indeed a phrase. And uh, in, on the surface, it does appear to have that strong collectivist, very conformist culture. Uh, at the same time, Japan is famous for all of the crazy, wacky subcultures that it produces. So sometimes people don't quite know how to justify this. And a lot of it comes down to the idea that you can kind of engage in, in whatever you want. And perhaps these creative uh, forces find even greater outlet when you're, you're kind of forced to conform in other aspects of your life. But as long as you're not rocking the boat, as long as you're not hurting anyone, 
as long as you are following at least the you know the the motions going through the motions that society expects of you on your own time you can kind of engage in these very fantastic and spectacular subcultures so uh, i think what draws it people to it is obviously if you're in a conservative envi- environment like that you you need an outlet you need a way to to get away from these things so Uh, I contend that goth subculture in Japan provides an alternative identity that allows individuals to kind of channel, express, and come to terms with negative emotions and experiences of alien and isolation, alienation and isolation, uh, which we all experience. Uh, but in Japan, they otherwise have a few socially sanctioned outlets in mainstream society for those types of feelings. So I think that's the big appeal. Also, the decaying of appeal of older generations' values. Uh, people today know that they're not going to have the same kind of life that maybe their parents or grandparents had. Um, you know, the, this is seen around the world. And instead, they choose to pursue subcultural values. Um, uh, Paul Hodkinson wrote about goth subculture in the UK, which is based on Pierre Bourdieu's concept of uh, cultural capital. So basically deciding to invest in subcultural capital rather than whatever mainstream forms of capital you might uh, pursue without success in many cases. Um, also goth, I think it can be adopted for life. A lot of people can keep being goth throughout their lives. Whereas if you look at a lot of other subcultures that are famous, like Bosozo, uh, Bosozo, the speed tribes, these are the, the people that drive around on the crazy bikes and make lots of noise. And they're like biker gangs that, that cruise the streets of Japan. They graduate when they turn 20, like they have a graduation ceremony and all these things. So you're expected to move on and become a normal functioning member of society. Now that you've had that, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but going back to Lancaster and the Amish, the Rumspringa uh, period, you know, uh, once you have that, you can go back into the, the fold as it were, uh, Gothic Lolita, the same thing. If you continue being Gothic Lolita into your thirties and forties, people are going to think very, uh, you know, strangely of you to say the least. So goth, on the other hand, you've heard of corporate goth. It's a little more compatible with just kind of sticking with that subculture all through your life. I was going to, this was actually like a question that you and Carmina can definitely uh, commentate on. I was, maybe this would be a good place to slide it in. But my question specifically was about um, maybe people who are really, really in to this goth culture in the East and specifically in Japan. When they get into it younger, I mean, here in the West, there there is a definite, um, at least from what I've seen, um, and a, a large amount of people who get into this culture when they're younger and they do kind of keep up with the dress and the lifestyle as they get older. And then a lot of them do go on to have kids and start families while partaking in this lifestyle. I feel like even, you know, maybe a few of us do it, not me. I don't have kids yet, but (laughs) so both of you, do you find that, I mean, you just explained some of it to me, but is there a certain culture in Japan where they, they do kind of take this dress and this lifestyle and this, gothicness into adulthood and then still raise families um is that is that becoming more commonplace or is that commonplace at all i do see that uh 
quite a few people, like, for example, over my research, uh, which started in 2012 uh, and up until the present, many of my informants have gotten married. Uh, some of them have had kids. And I noticed that the, they do keep it up to a degree. Uh, their ability to participate in these events and whatnot gets a little uh, more trickier. You know, they have a lot more obligations. But for example, I know a, a guy who is a regular at Black Veil, which is Osaka's premier goth, gothic event. And he was he was stationed in another city with his job. His family was living in Osaka and he had to take a bullet train to go into the uh, into Osaka and attend this event on New Year's Eve, which is traditionally like a, the number one family holiday in Japan. So he would go to his family's house, see his wife and daughter, have dinner with them, and then put on his white face paint and the you know makeup and everything and run out the door and go to this all night uh, gothic club event, this countdown event. And then he'd go back, see his family, and then go back to his work like the next day, basically. So uh, people do get very serious. He also is in a band. Uh, he does live performances, more metal. But uh, yeah, so, so seeing that, it's definitely something that's rising because the people who are into it that uh, La Carmina and I got to know, they're, they're getting older. A lot of them are older than us and they do uh, balance family and the subculture quite well, I think. I would agree with all that. And we also know a couple in Osaka that have a baby. And I remember seeing on Facebook that this very satanic gothic couple had a birthday party for the baby. It, there was a big sign that said, Happy Satan Day. And the baby <laughs> is dressed in red and black and holding a stuffed baphomet. That's so, badass. Yep. Never give it up. <laughs> That's great. Now, Dr. Scotland, do you see Satanism and goth culture on the rise as a trend and lifestyle in Japan? Well, again, going back to the disillusionment with mainstream values and this kind of precarity that people have concerning the future, I think that really does lead to the pursuit of alternative values. Uh, goth, I would say, you know, as the old song goes, is undead and uh, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It might change its form, but the goth subculture is just kind of continuing. Satanism is a bit different uh, in that the incarnations that I encountered are based more on the Church of Satan uh, as a self-religion. So in meaning that you know, it's a religion of self. It, it venerates the self, sees society and mainstream culture as restrictive to being authentic, you know, restricting your authentic self. So it, it kind of separates the self from society. Whereas uh, TST, this modern form of Satanism, is a socially engaged religion where engagement with society via activism is actually an essential part of its makeup. So I don't see that type of socially engaged Satanism in Japan. I see that self-religion. Uh, but I think that the scene is ripe for change. Because uh, there are a lot of, you know, movements. Japan has had its own less than successful Me Too movement. Uh, you know, there's a lot of issues that people rail against. And uh, there, there isn't so much about the 
say the theocratic encroachments and whatnot, although, you know, there are concerns about state Shinto, things like that. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of hot button issues for people that you see parades and occasional protests, but uh, none of it's related to, you know, Satanism. I could very easily see some of these people using that as a platform to become more socially engaged under the, you know, the, t- the banner of TST, which I think would be really fascinating. No, I just wanted to thank you for, for you know, going through a couple questions with me. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, and I do have one question now because it is almost time. Well, it is time to, uh, start talking about the new, uh, the new TV show coming up. But I, uh, if, if it was mentioned, then my most sincerest of apologies, but I will leave this for both of you to answer. Um, how did the two of you come together? Oh, wow. We met, what year was that, John? Was it 2008 or 2008. Yep. 2008. Yeah. So in the Tokyo goth scene at the time, the longest running and the most arguably the most vibrant party is Midnight Mess. It's run by our friend, Mistress Maya. And I met some of my best friends in the Japanese gothic scene there because the night it's so inclusive. You get people who put so much effort into the way they dress the music that plays there is incredible maya brings in performers like covenant and kevin key from skinny puppy so john and i met the very first time that i went to that party that's where i met some of the people who remain some of my closest friends today it really brought a lot of us together now what was it that you know kept you all together um over the you know the years leading up until uh what we're talking about today Yeah, throughout the years, we've worked on a number of things together. Since we share so many mutual interests, the very first thing that we did was I had, I featured John in my book, Crazy Wacky Theme Restaurants, which I was researching and writing at the time, the time that we met in Tokyo. So we went to the Vampire Cafe and John dressed up in his finest vampiric clothing and posed for photos. And throughout the years, if you check out my blog, La Carmina blog, it's about my personal adventures with my friends as we discover the gothic scene in Tokyo, but also around the world. Throughout the years, I've managed to travel with John to a number of different places. We've been to Vietnam. We did Cambodia together, including Angkor Wat. We were in San Francisco, Hong Kong, number of places where we would investigate the local gothic and underground or bizarre scenes. We also have collaborated on a number of TV programs. John and I have been on a number of shows together, both on camera and working behind the scenes as local production coordinators. These include things like Taboo for National Geographic, um, The Doctor's TV show, and a bunch of German shows. So yeah, it's really, I, I love working with my friends. I think it's the best way to put together the best type of project when these are people who get who you are and you can build something big and crazy together. Yeah. Let me just say, if you follow La Carmina, you will find uh, adventure. You'll find interesting things. So <laughs> it just kind of uh, was very organic uh, the way we collaborated on various things over the years. I, you know, just a lot of it happened to be being in the right place at the right time, being in Japan, being in, I lived in Hong Kong for quite a long period and just, uh, you know, our, our interests always kind of aligned like that. 
And even though, you know, La Carmina is in Vancouver, I've been bouncing between Japan, Hong Kong, mainland China. It's just uh, continued over the years with writing and, and all that. So, yeah, it's just but the really the catalyst was the goth scene in Japan. Uh, it really just was kind of a, a magical time where uh, creative people melded together. And I feel like it's lost some of that, but it's still there. It's still there. Uh, we hope to revive it eventually by having our own party once travel becomes an option. Satanic show and tell. Um, whoever wants to take this one, what inspired you to start this series? Well, as I mentioned, John and I have worked together throughout the years on a number of TV projects, both in production and on camera appearances. And that was my main focus for the past few years. But something like the pandemic happened and that prevented me from traveling and doing the usual TV work that I would usually do. Over the years, I also dabbled in freelance journalism. But since now I'm stuck at home and continue to be, I pivoted to that starting last year. Now, in my goal in writing is to write about things that I find are important and that resonate with me, which led to me writing a few articles about the Satanic Temple. That led to me connecting with Lucian Greets, co-founder and spokesperson. And Lucian is great. He knew that I did TV work, so he very kindly invited me to create a show for Satanic Temple TV, their relatively new web platform that it's kind of designed like community programming. There are these original series such as the Satanic Chef's cooking show, there are music shows, a Dear Satan advice show, and all sorts of documentaries about Anton LaVey, trepanation or drilling a hole in your head, stuff that obviously we adore. So of course I said, yes, I talked to John about it because as you can tell, we work really well together. And I thought John's academic background and his expertise would bring a lot of value to a program. That's how Satanic Show and Tell came to be. It's an interview style show that we shoot remotely via Zoom so that it's safe. And in each episode, we talk to a notable guest about their bizarre satanic related possessions. They'll show us what they have, which could be a devil man guitar or monster masks or a shrunken head, whatever it might be. They show and tell on the screen and talk about the history and the fascinating stories behind these objects. Now that sounds fantastic. Now reading some of the, um, some of the material that is available in regards to the teasers is what's coming up with satanic show and tell. Um, is there anything specifically, uh, you can tell us about like from a content or any guests that you've covered or featured so far that we can expect from your first few episodes? <laughs> you bet. It should probably be coming out within the next month or so. So we're very excited. You'll be able to see it on satanic temple TV. Now doing this show gave me an opportunity to reconnect with some of my old friends throughout the year who share my love of satanic oddities. I was actually on the oddities TV show, which aired on discovery science. And that's where I met the stars of the show, Evan Michelson, Ryan Matthew Cohen, both of them, agreed to be on satanic show and tell. So you'll see some pretty notable names. Sweet. If you've ever seen any of their episodes, you know that they bring these rare, bizarre, weird objects, and they're so good at diving into the history behind them. So I think those are two episodes you will really enjoy. 
John, did you have any other favorite guests? Well, I really enjoyed talking to Alex Streeter. Uh, we had him on the show, and he's the New York silversmith responsible for the Angel Heart Ring, which you may be familiar with. It's uh, basically two ram's heads uh, holding a pentagram in the middle, and you see it on people from, ranging from Marilyn Manson to uh, rock stars like Hyde in Japan, and uh, it's a very popular design. He makes amazing jewelry. He and his uh, daughter, who's also a very... Uh, talented silversmith they in, allowed us to interview them showed us around uh, their place in arizona and their studio and he has some amazing things in his collection uh also carmina mentioned the devil man guitar uh, that was our friend trevor that'll be a fun episode because we talk a lot about uh our interest in japan and and also just kind of what it's like to grow up uh, in the U.S. And, and also with the kind of conservative culture when you're very different. So I like the very personal aspect of that episode. You can also look out for our first uh, Japanese guest who we're going to be filming with very soon, uh, Ryoichi Kiropi Maeda, who is an expert on body modification, photographer, writer, and he has some really amazing things to show us concerning extreme body modification. So that will be something to look out. I'm going to reveal some skin on the show. It's nothing scandalous, but uh, <laughs> it will be quite interesting for those interested in body modification. Sweet. Um, now, throughout the experience of putting this television show together, now, I know you mentioned that, you know, you worked with each other in the past, but is there anything specific to this project that um, or that provided you any highlights or key learnings that you'll be able to take with you and apply maybe on future projects or that may have, you know, light bulbs that might have gone off in regards to, you know, things that you can do, you know, in the current season of the show that you're doing or um, just anything really, any standout moments that, um, you know, that you'll take with you? Well, one thing I'm very grateful for is that the Satanic Temple TV lets us do what we want to do without content restrictions, without time limits. When we work with network TV, there are a million rules and our ideas get shot down all the time for being too extreme or just too out there, or they might get cut in the final version. Whereas this show, it's, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't forget the cannibalism. We can't oh, yes. forget, don't forget the cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't end up happening yet, but you never know. We're still pushing <laughs> yeah, for it, so... damn it. <laughs> Yay, cannibalism! Well, we had John get his blood drawn, at least. John has been able to do some pretty extreme things on network TV. I, I will give <laughs> them that. But the great thing about the Satanic Temple TV is that, again, we can really go big. We can have the type of show that we always envisioned without restrictions. So for me, that's been a very welcome change and it's let John and me stretch our creative muscles in ways we've never before. Now, what is it like um, from your perspectives? Um, what is it like being a Satanist in Japan? The, the Satanists that I encounter, the people who are very familiar with Satanism uh, as a religion, as a philosophy, they are the ones who, of course, were reading uh, material from LaVey and the Church of Satan. And also they just have a general interest in the occult. So, for example, there's uh, 
satanic shop territory in Osaka, which we can talk a little bit more about later. But uh, the owner, Taiki, used to be in New York. He would uh, hang out with people like Paul Booth and uh, Voltaire back in the, the goth scene in the 90s in New York. So they, they got a lot of that influence from a time when, of course, uh, TST didn't exist. So it is very heavy into that. Uh, the only book on Satanism in Japan at the moment uh, that I'm aware of that has been written particularly from a Satanist perspective is called Satanic Advice or Satanic Life Advice uh, by Yoshiki Takahashi, who's a good friend of mine. And in the beginning of that book, he actually gives translations of the the nine satanic statements, the satanic sins, the satanic rules of earth that LeVay came up with and formulated in his writings. So these are actually the first of Japanese translations that I'm aware of that actually been put into print. So anyone else who wants to find out about Satanism just has to, you know, uh, read the books on their own or find somebody's like basically fan translations of these works. Um, So in that way, it's a bit different. Now, all that said, being a Satanist is really doesn't carry the same weight that it does uh, in Western countries simply because of the lack of uh, Christian influence. Now, that's just to say there is no Christian influence, but uh, if you don't mind me getting into a little bit of history. No, not at all. In, in Japan, you know, back, uh, you know, when they were first encountering traders from the West, like the Dutch, uh, the Portuguese, this would be back in like the 1500s, 1600s. They, of course, brought Christianity with them. And it did take hold a little bit. Um, there were people who converted to Catholicism in Japan. But then, uh, you know, there's there was the Warring States period around 1603, I believe. Uh, the Tokugawa shogunate was officially put into place. And you have that, uh, you know, roughly 200 some years of peace and also isolation. And part of what contributed to that isolation where Japan closed off its ports was something called the Shimabara Rebellion, which was probably it was the biggest civil conflict during that period. And uh It was a rebellion against two things, uh, taxation. You know, people don't like to be taxed. Uh, There's heavy taxes being put on people. And the other one was uh, the shogunate really wanted to shut down Christianity because he saw it as a tool for these, uh, you know, for the Portuguese and the Dutch to basically get a foothold in Japan and influence, you know, tell them that they should listen to God instead of the shogun, listen to the Pope or whatever. So he, he shut that down. And there was a rebellion and it was a very bloody uh, conflict. Uh, the film by Shusuke Endo, the, the, the novel Silence, uh, I believe the film had Andrew Garfield in it. Uh, the one with Adam Driver? Yep, yep. Yes. That's the one. Yeah, I haven't seen it, it but I know um, quite a bit about this event. And um, so thank you. <laughs> Please keep talking about it. <laughs> It was a harrowing time uh, in history. And then what that led to is what's called the Kakure Kirishitan, which is the hidden Christians who lived uh, in Japan in hiding and kind of disguised their worship uh, under Shinto and things like that. It's a very fascinating thing. But all that to say, uh, Christianity didn't have much of a foothold until Japan opened up its ports again uh, around 1860, the mid-1860s when uh, the colonial powers basically forced Japan. Uh, you know, Commodore Perry came in with his black ships and, and big cannons and said, hey, open up your ports or else. And, you know, that led to the, the modernization of Japan. So 
That said, if you have a satanic shop like that in Osaka, you've got a big Baphomet sigil right out front on a big billboard. Nobody's picketing that. Nobody's protesting. Nobody cares. You know, you walk around with, uh, you know, your satanic shirts. Satanic images are very uh, playfully used in things like anime. If you've heard of Yonde Masio Azazero-san, it's uh, it's one where basically the the demons of the you know uh, the lesser key of King Solomon uh, are in these cute little chibi anime characters, <laughs> and uh, it's 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 a funny one. It's a gag anime. If you get a chance to watch it, I recommend it. But yeah, that's about how seriously this stuff is taken a lot of times. And when you say this stuff, like, do you do you find that there's any kind of uh, Satan equivalent that exists in Japan that, you know, would be picketed with such vitriol and, and vehemence? Um, or is it just kind of a different culture all around where that doesn't have a need to happen as much? Yeah, not really. I mean, it's really hard to be to be blasphemous in Japan just because of the difference. Uh, so, for example, Japan has a history of syncretic uh, syncretism. And basically, Japan had its native kami, you know, nature worship, uh, animism, Shinto, and then it uh, received Buddhism through Korea and China, all coming from India, of course, around the fifth and sixth centuries. And those two kind of always coexisted pretty peacefully, not always, but for the most part. And part of that was just the way that they fused them together. Uh, they had something called the Honji Sijaku, which meant that the kami of Japan, the gods of Japan, were essentially emanations or manifestations of the Buddha and the Bosatsu and the Bodhisattva, all of these, uh, you know, the pantheon of Buddhism. So that allowed them to coexist. And of course, you had the reverse theory where the Buddhas were the emanations of the original gods of Japan, obviously a bit more pleasing to uh, those who want to uh, have more national pride, let's say. So this is all back in like medieval times. And it's continued. Basically, uh, you can be affiliated with multiple religions, which is why surveys of Japan checking religion will find that the number of adherents to specific religions when aggregated will total more than the population of Japan because people identify with more than one. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, people say that you are born Shinto, you marry Christian, and you die Buddhist. And this is because <laughs> Shinto has a lot of uh, life-celebrating holidays. Uh, death is considered an impurity, uh, so it doesn't deal with death very well. And Buddhism filled the need for that because it has very elaborate uh, funerary rites that are uh, that deal with this and fill this need for people. And, of course, people love to have Christian-style weddings. Uh, La Carmina and I have a friend in Japan who does this, <laughs> he officiates weddings because they just want a Caucasian person there to, you know, do the stuff because it, it's authentic. Right. And uh, so, yeah, because of all these things, again, it, it's hard to get that kind of outrage uh, against religions and things like that. There are, of course, you know, extreme people. There's new religions, uh, what are called the uh, Shinko Shukyo, and these new religions are often cult-like. Uh, one prime example would be the Om Shinrikyo, which were the ones that did the sarin gas attacks in the Tokyo right, subway in right, 1995. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And that definitely 
gave a bad name to a lot of religions, especially these new religions. So in that case, yeah, if you say you're a member of a, a Shinko Shukyo, one of these new religions, uh, you might get a side eye from people. You might People might look at you funny, uh, especially back then. It's cooled down a bit, but uh, to be sure, that might be a somewhat of an equivalent. Uh, but it's again, it's very different. Attention staff and students, this is your principal with your daily update. The Satanic Study Hall podcast is not affiliated with any other podcast or organization. None. Zero. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are ours and ours alone. Hail Satan. Now, can either of you speak to uh, what kind of presence, just from your uh, observations, the Satanic Temple has in Japan, um, as far as maybe, like, I don't know, friendly friend, friends of groups or um, just any, any type of support or anything going on over there? As far as I'm aware, there are no groups like that. Uh, La Carmina and I have friends who, you know, we talk to them about TST. They read about it. They're, you know, they're interested in it. It does get exposure like Rolling Stone uh, magazine. They they directly translate their articles into Japanese so people can read about Lucian and, and the reproductive rights campaigns in Japanese. It's all there. And this is something I'd like to investigate further because my research uh, kind of mostly predates the the big kind of media blitz of TST uh, in the West. So I'd be interested to see if there are people like that. But as far as I know, there are no formal groups. I've never heard of any. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's growing interest, though, especially our friends who are foreigners from, say, America or Europe who live in Japan and take part in the Gothic and Satanic scene there. They're expressing increasing interest. And they're participating in some way. For instance, Lucian Graves runs a weekly movie night where people can watch bad movies together and chat. And many of our favorite people from the Tokyo Gothic scene have dropped in and they really enjoy it. So even just on a cultural level, there's interest there. When regards to, you know, Satanism in Japan or just can you tell us, especially I guess this would be more aimed at Carmina. Um, what are some satan friendly or satanic um friendly you know hot spots in japan if where would some really key places that we would want to you know take note of going uh, to visit yeah this is something that we love to explore every time we are in japan so I'll, I'll let john talk a bit more about it but in tokyo osaka and kobe there are a few places one of one place I really enjoy in Osaka is Bar Midian. It's run by a former Visual K J rocker named Fuki. The cocktails cost 666 yen, nice. and all around <laughs> you'll see decorations that have to do with the devil. But true to Japan, it's such a friendly place, and he's a great guy to rock out to heavy metal music with and and hail Satan. Indeed. Yeah, you can you can say hail Satan in these places and, and you're not going to get any funny looks. Uh, you know, people identify that as almost like a metal thing, you know, just be say hail Satan. It's like, yeah, uh, rock on kind of ideas. So uh, Midian is a great bar. Definitely check that one out. While in Osaka, I mentioned Territory, which is a satanic shop. You kind of venture underground under this, you know, kind of nondescript building in the middle of what's called uh, America Village, America Mura, which is a, a 
specific area of Shinsai Bashi where a lot of the subculture takes place. And you go down the stairs and you find this door with the satanic, uh, you know, with the sigil of Baphomet on it. You open it up. There's a glowing sigil of Baphomet. Go through another gate. And there's this life-size Baphomet statue with incense burning in front of it. This dark cavernous uh, little shop that's just packed completely with uh, you name it, like movie props from like The Exorcist, uh, all kinds of occult bric-a-brac, Freemason, uh, you know, items. There's even some, uh, you know, a lot of historic stuff, objet d'art, very satanic looking. And of course, uh, the guy who runs it, Taiki, designs his own T-shirts and different merchandise, all featuring, featuring his own stylized sigil of Baphomet design. And uh, there are also some fun ones. Uh, like inverted crucifixes and whatnot. And uh, yeah, it's just a great place to check out. Taiki speaks a little English. Uh, he's the one I mentioned who used to travel to New York a lot. Also in Kobe, Taiki's cousin, Midori, runs what is called a gothic fetish bar named Idea. It's spelled like Idea, I-D-E-A. And it's in Kobe. And it's a, what it sounds like, a gothic fetish bar. The inside is very dark and you have a long bar with a bed of nails under glass and you can remove the glass and lay down on the bed of nails if you're so inclined uh i won't say how many times (laughs) or if i ever did that Uh, and you know there's it's fetish themed so obviously the girls are wearing uh you know fetish type outfits there's shibari shows the japanese rope binding and you can get whipped you can get candle wax on you it's kind of a little uh, playground you can go to and everything's very occult themed even in the design her logo is also her own stylized pentagram that she had designed for her by her cousin the there are bars, iron bars behind the bar blocking off the shelves. There's six, 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 three sets of six. In the bathroom, the wall is red, lined with black iron bars. There are 72 for each demon, one for each demon of the lesser key of King Solomon. So there's a lot of uh, occult knowledge that went into the design of the place. And there's some, uh, you know, a lot of satanic artwork. She has a full-size replica of Dracula from Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola one. If you recall when Dracula is in his bat form, but he's human-sized and he's hanging upside down, uh, there's a replica of that hanging on the wall there. So it's it's just a really fun place to go. Great place to talk to people and just relax and be yourself. So now that we've covered Satanism in Japan, let's take this tour of Satanism Global. To start out, La Carmina, You recently wrote an article titled The World's 10 Most Devilish Destinations. What do you think is the appeal of these destinations for Satanists as well as both uh, the locals and the tourists who are checking them out? Right. That article was for the Daily Beast Travel. And I wrote about a whole variety of destinations found around the world. Some of them were more on the kitschy side, such as an Austin karaoke parlor with a giant pentagram on the floor. While others were more earnest, I covered the Satanic Temple in Salem. There's a church in Cape Town and some history museums around the world. I think that these destinations are not just for friends of Satan. They're really for everybody, because I think it's in human nature that we're all drawn a little bit to that which is taboo and frightening. 
that's why we love things like haunted houses and Halloween. We want to be able to dip our toes in and get a little bit of the fear without going too far. So if you go to, say, the Lithuania Devil Museum, you can see these relics associated with rituals or death masks from around the world, but they're behind glass cases and they're presented in an educational context that lets families, people from all walks of lives, come and experience a bit of hell without going too far so that they feel uncomfortable and get into the transgressive zone themselves. And that's why I think it's something that piques people's interest, no matter who they are. Dipping their toes into the lake of fire. All right. So you've <laughs> been, there you go. Blau's getting awfully excited. I heard him getting excited when we're talking about that bar over in Japan. So. Yeah, he's, he, he likes to dive into shit like that. <laughs> All right. So you've been investigating devilish art and folklore around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out? And also, how do some of these historical uh, things relate to kind of modern day Satanism? So I think La Carmina uh, can speak to this uh, as well, but I think <clears throat> modern day Satanism is in many ways uh, a hodgepodge. It always has been. Uh, defining Satanism has been kind of notoriously difficult. And, you know, like from the beginnings of the Church of Satan, LeBay, with his satanic rituals, he took you know, rituals from around the world, these different influences. He had a German one, uh, you know, he had Lovecraftian rituals based on Lovecraft, you know, from fiction. And so there's never been any hesitancy to just kind of uh, pick and choose and kind of uh, take from the global cultural supermarket of the occult and uh, take what you want and make it work for you. So, uh, you know, the list of demonic names that he gives includes the names of devils from many different cultures. And he always tried to posit this kind of universality of Satanism, that uh, Satanism is not limited to the very narrow view of, uh, you know, Satan as just the Christian devil, you know, this kind of monolithic entity that, uh, of course, is an illusion, because if you look at the history of how Satan developed, he was never even just one character. He was multiple characters conflated into one over, you know, more than a thousand years. So in that way, I think these the devilish art and folklore, they all can contribute to Satanism in their own ways. And I think that's the one of the wonderful things about Satanism is that if you're a Satanist from, say, this culture, from this country, you can take something that is... Uh, you know, something evil, something dark, something that represents the outsider or the rebel from that particular culture and incorporate that into your own personal conceptions of Satanism. And there's nothing against that. You know, you have total freedom to do that. So uh, that's one of the really great things uh, about it. Yeah. And it's also the approach that we take in our TV show, Satanic Show and Tell. We take a broader definition of Satanic so when people show their objects to us, they might come from different cultures around the world. They might be Japanese oni or troll demon masks that have horns, but aren't actually linked to the Christian devil. There's just similarities in the representation. Or people might talk about the underworld and concepts of hell in ancient, uh, in ancient Egypt or in the Mayan and Aztec history. So it kind of goes back to what I mentioned before, there might be something innate in human nature that draws us to this idea 
of a hell and other, a dark underworld and how we can relate to it. It's a theme you see worldwide and it's something that we love investigating. All right. Well, speaking of your investigations, I uh, want to thank you for introducing me to the, um, to Santa Muerte, which is translated as a sink death. And I found this very fascinating as I was kind of prepping my research for the, uh, for this podcast episode. So, um, you had mentioned that Santa Muerte panic in Mexico and how it is comparable to our own satanic panic here in the United States. Can you tell us a bit about the history of Santa Muerte, how it started and the explosion in popularity that it's generated? Yes, I'd love to. So Santa Muerte, or Our Lady of Holy Death, she looks a bit like the Grim Reaper. She's this skeleton woman who wears robes and holds a sharp sigh. Now, her imagery probably dates back to around the 18th century. But you could say that Mexican, uh, in, uh, you know, the Mayans, the Aztecs, have long had representations of skeleton deities. There's also Day of the Dead, the festival to honor ancestors who have passed. So Santa Muerte has been around, but her veneration really only took off in the past 10 or 15 years or so. A lot of that is linked to the growing dissatisfaction with the dominant Catholic Church establishment in Mexico, being unable to provide support to people who most need it, people who are stricken by social economic hardship, people who are young and outsiders because maybe they're uh, sex workers or LGBTQ. So instead of finding support in the Catholic Church, they are drawn to the non-judgmental saint of Santa Muerte. They'd venerate her in widely differing ways, but sometimes by offering her um, offerings of alcohol, tobacco, a lot of it's done in secret because it's considered bit of a taboo in Mexico. Hey, I think that behind, you know, offering, you know, tobacco and, and booze to you know, to a deity, I mean, not that I believe in it directly, but I, I think it'd be pretty funny. It's like, here, here you go, you know. But anyway. <laughs> you give Krampus right. a little bit of whiskey, right? To no, Rumplemints. Oh, Jesus, you're That's right. right. Yeah, it's a Rumplemints <laughs> We went Krampus. on a little Rumplemints binge here during uh, our... our um, Krampus folklore. During our Krampus uh, folklore. And our uh, exploration, yeah. it, it was and not as a not as a drink ingredient. We just poured rumplements into a <laughs> glass and drank it. <laughs> yeah, we we just went hardcore with that. So, um, so you told me, uh, or you mentioned a little bit about you know the the rise in, in prominence amongst you know kind of the um the the disenfranchised the, those who the Catholic Church may have you know turned a, a blind eye to um, I've also heard that it's been you know has some roots in in like criminals and drug dealers and and people like that is that still the the same kind of of draw of being felt like they're the outcast of society or is it something different yeah there certainly is an element there. People associated with crime and the drug cartels in Mexico often have Santa Muerte as their protector saint. And perhaps they use her as a bit of an excuse to commit crimes and be protected or be absolved of it. But at the same time, I think it's a gross misrepresentation that, that, is, that this is the majority of people who find her important in their lives a lot of them are just people who are lower income or 
um, night workers, could be some grandmother who's just having a lot of trouble and in wants to have a protector deity to be supporting her that she cannot find elsewhere. So similar to the panics that we see in the West, there's a lot of a misrepresentation and sensationalism focusing on the worst elements when that's really not the case. And following up with that, um, could you tell us a little bit about how the Santa Muerte panic, tell us a little bit about it, and also how it's similar to and different from our own satanic panic that we've had in the United States? Yeah, well, similarly, the Catholic Church has condemned Santa Muerte, calling it satanic, blasphemous, Also, the Protestant church in Mexico has also demonized it as black magic, trickery. Um, And there's also this element of, it's really the the association of Santa Muerte. I'll just do that. You'll cut that part, right? (laughs) You can three, two, one us at any time. (laughs) Start back wherever you're ready. Okay, we'll three, two on that one. Okay. Three, two, one. Yeah, the Catholic church has condemned Santa Muerte as diabolical and satanic. You also see the Protestant church in Mexico calling it uh, black magic and trickery, but it's really a distortion of what goes on. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of false claims of ritual abuse. There's another parallel to the satanic panic that have no Mm -hmm. basis in reality. For instance, in 2012, there were three people who were murdered, and this was considered a human sacrifice to Santa Muerte. This is something that the press ran with. This is something that officials and people in the religious institutions spread. But there was actually no proof whatsoever that there was any link. You see that also in prosecutions. Sometimes you might have a drug trafficking case, and the person is caught with a Santa Muerte prayer card, for instance. And this person is given a harsher sentence because there seems to be a link with this evil demonic cult, as they put it. It's just insane how the sensationalism and falsehoods, they run rampant and affect people who often have nothing to do with crime. They're just regular people, as I mentioned before, who find a connection with Santa Muerte There's a whole spectrum also. Some people, they don't believe in an actual Santa Muerte. She's more of a metaphor of the outsider, the rebel who stands up to authority, similar to how a lot of Satanists perceive Satan. Exactly. exactly. That was uh, that was one of my questions, though, just as you were speaking. Um, So I'm not obviously I've never been to Mexico. Um, Have you find Have you found in your research and just about the culture like is Catholicism? so ingrained still in the government of Mexico that that a lot of people are being arrested and going to jail and being prosecuted over this? Like, is it just more condemnation from the Catholic entities that exist down there? Or is this, you know, it, like, like we had at one point in the U.S. and still sometimes do have? Um, is there like this uh, theocracy uh, government combo going on in Mexico? Yeah, very much a combo. There's a lot of corruption that goes on. And it's just unfortunate that it's come to this. At the end of the day, Santa Muerte rose because there is a crisis there. There's issues of violence and instability. 
the church and the government are unable to provide any solutions to that. And in a way, they're just making it worse by pushing away and demonizing the people who are trying to get by day to day. It's like if you can't, if God isn't helping you, then you might as well turn to Satan, right? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> exactly. So unlike modern day Satanists who don't believe in a literal Satan, and as you mentioned, seeing it as a, a symbol of um, rebellion, um, so those who are devoted to Santa Morte not only seem to truly believe in her existence, but also are tied to a larger criminal movement, like we had mentioned about some of the drug dealers and, and those people. So how would you compare and contrast the intentions of these worshipers to other dark worshipers? Now, I'm not talking about Satanists who actually um, you know, are modern-day Satanists where they actually care for people in their community. They have compassion, empathy, and all that. But people who actually go down this road with dark intentions and thinking, okay, I am literally uh, you know, wanting to seek out you know, evil power to to help me or or whatnot, as would seemingly be the case with those who who uh, who worship um, Santa Muerte. Well, I think as always, there's a wide spectrum. You have some people who are theistic worshipers and who may have more nefarious purposes and combine their veneration of Santa Muerte with justification for crimes. But on the other side which I think is the vast majority and gets overlooked because it's less interesting and sensational. It's just that Santa Muerte is this non-judgmental accepting deity that some people don't, they don't actually believe in her existence, but see her as a kindred spirit. So for instance, here's something that very few people know about because it's not talked about in the media. People in Mexico, they may have a same sex marriage and, call upon Santa Muerte as the guiding spirit for that ceremony and able to find, since they aren't able to find the support from the dominant church, they create their own and they find a way to have another symbol to bless their union and represent who they are more accurately. That is definitely powerful and, and moving that uh, you can, you can find a, a higher power or at least a higher symbol uh, that can, they can offer you that in kind of a communal aspect, which you may not find in, say, like the Catholic Church or, or something like that. So thank you for sharing all that with us. Uh, let's take our global tour of Satanism. Let's keep it going on maybe a slightly more positive note um, by discussing Satanism in other cultures. So you described some of the tales of the horn gods and hell and the underworld as particularly interesting, including those in Greece and Egypt. Tell us about the more interesting tales and legends that you've encountered. So speaking of Egypt, uh, we all love to talk about the Baphomet. And uh, there's a lot of, if you research Baphomet, there's a lot of theories about its origins. There's been a little more scholarly consensus uh, lately compared to before, I guess, because there's a lot more people looking into it. But one of the, the deities that you can trace it back to would be, and pardon my Egyptian, Benebjedet, the god of fertility uh, in ancient Egypt. Now, this was uh, in a particular area of Egypt. Uh, and again, it was uh, known as the Lord of Mendes. So how do we talk about the goat of Mendes? How did this happen? How did all of this get from there to the sabbatic goat? So again, this kind of thing, I have a book on Egyptian uh, gods and goddesses. It has a very small section on uh, Benebjadet. And 
So a lot of this is internet research. So it's right until someone proved me wrong in the comments. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, this god of fertility was the head of a ram, uh, sometimes shown on a man, sometimes it was just a ram looking on something more like a, a horse almost. And so he was known for his sexual prowess and the lord of sexual pleasure. So you can see why he's an easy target to be turned into a devil in Christianity. And the way they portrayed him was often as these kind of spiraling horns, which looked a lot more like a goat than they did a ram. And the Greek historian Herodotus, apparently uh, because he made an error in translation, referred to Benedjadet as the goat of Mendes. And there was this kind of cult, a fertility cult that was known for worshiping this. There were reports of women copulating with goats. Uh, whether this actually happened or not is up for debate because, of course, you know, uh, ancient historians were played a little fast and loose with their facts sometimes, as you might know. So, But regardless, uh, kids, don't try this at home. Yes, yes. So we're all for sexual pleasure, but when it involves a goat, uh, you know, we got to step back and and evaluate our life choices. I don't know if Belial's agreeing or disagreeing, but you definitely got a reaction there. So continue, please. Sorry. Well, we'll try to keep uh, Belial under control. Get back in the corner, Belial. Uh, feel free to react uh, to those. But anyway, uh, apparently Herodotus also claimed that they referred to the goat Mendes uh, also as Pan, because at that time there was a lot of this Hellenic influence in Egypt and there was a lot of syncretism going on between the Greek uh, mythologies and the Egyptian mythologies. So uh, that's where the link to Pan apparently comes from. And uh, the Greeks eventually changed Benebjadet to Mendes and referred to the ram as a goat because it looked more like a goat. And apparently there was a translation error. So they were uh, worshipped as gods of fertility and fecundity. Uh, you know, they were represented very similar to how Pan was later on. And the sexual connotations, of course, led to him being, uh, you know, turned into a devil by the later Christians and eventually became like the king of the witches that you see in, in that famous Goya painting, the, the witch's Sabbath. And so eventually, of course, we have the famous painting or the drawing by Eliphas Slivy uh, in his Dogmas and Rituals of High Magic. So he has what he describes as the Sabbatic goat. And it seems that the influence goes all the way back to our old friend, Benebjadet. And that's the story of how we got uh, the Baphomet in the form that he exists. Of course, also taking into account and conflating with the, uh, the Baphomet of the Templars, which uh, was a goat as well. So it's really, it's fascinating to trace these things. You go down a, a rabbit hole and find all these connections. And because it's over such a long period of time and among so many writers, it's difficult to trace, uh, you know, a concrete lineage. But uh, it's nice to know that Baphomet was quite a stud back in the day. And, uh, you know, he represents uh, good old loving of life and creating more life. Um, we're actually going to be diving into um, some origin of episodes here pretty soon with 
um, Baphomet and the whole as above, so below origin and uh, all of that. So uh, we're, we're super excited to learn more about that as well. And thanks for giving us a sneak preview as to what uh, some of our listeners can expect. Seriously. Yeah. So we often jokingly talk about the negative effects of bad karma these days. But according to the Buddhist beliefs, the results of your bad actions can land you in Naraka, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, the Buddhist version of hell. Uh, but not for eternity, but for millions upon millions of years. So tell us a bit more about Naraka and, and how it differs from depictions of hell by other cultures. Well, Buddhism and secular Buddhism in particular, it's a interest of mine. So I would be glad to talk about Buddhist hell. First, the Buddhist conception of worldly existence or samsara, rather than the dichotomy of heaven and hell, existence is seen as a wheel, the wheel of life. And there are six realms within it. There are the gods, demigods, humans, animals, hungry ghosts, and then you have Nalaka, Buddhist hell. That is a Sanskrit word that means of man, which is already quite interesting there because it indicates that you end up in these realms, whether it's hell or elsewhere, not because of sin or divine judgment, but because of your own doing and the causes and conditions within your own life. Now, I think I should make the important point that most Buddhists don't literally believe that this is what life is, this wheel of six realms that include hell. Rather, it's a very expressive metaphor and a way of conceiving the world that, in fact, is quite accurate, I think, to day-to-day, the day-to-day experience of life. For instance, I think we can all remember a time when we were going through a self-destructive period, when we have a lot of anger and tension and bad relationships. So you could say that at that moment, we are in hell. But other times we're feeling at peace. Things are flowing. We're in the moment. So we might be up there with the gods and the demigods. But of course, in Buddhism, the, one of the truths that requires no supernaturalism it's a mere scientific fact, is that everything is impermanent. All things are transitory, and we never stay permanently in any of these realms. None of us can suddenly achieve happiness and stay there forever, right? We're always bumping around to the different points of the wheel. So the real way of escaping samsara, this wheel of life, is by being present in the moment without aversion or grasping rather just riding the waves as and letting them pass through you as you go through life. Now, so there's many differences there between Christian hell and Buddhist hell. But if you look at Tibetan art that depicts exactly what goes on in Nalaka, you will know that it makes Christian hell look pretty weak. Because in Buddhist hell, there aren't nine circles of an inferno. There are 18 realms, nine hot, nine cold, and these artists will show you exactly what goes on there. Demons performing horrific tortures, like boiling you alive or having crows peck out your stomach, taking your head off and replacing it with that of an animal. So yeah, just really graphically depicting all the different stages that we can go through and that we will continue to suffer if we rely on grasping and aversion and looking forward and backward and not at what is immediately in front of us. I think it's also an interesting point that because it's a wheel, hell 
lies directly next to the realm of the gods. And I think that if you ask anyone who maybe has a modicum of fame or success, people might think that you live a godly existence and they envy you, but really you're just a couple notches away from hell. Kind of sounds like the sort of Damocles story, if you've ever heard of that. Fascinating. For a moment there, I was actually like, wow, Buddhism sounds really cool and about living in the moment and whatnot. And then you started describing hell. Buddhism like, is really cool. It is, but their yep. depiction yep. of hell, it's, uh, I'm a little scared. I have to admit, <laughs> like, someone like pecking out your eyes and being boiled alive, like, I know the Christian hell isn't that, you know, isn't supposed to be that great, but man, they, they, at least they spare us the details. Jeez. No, right. I did not know about the nine stages of cold. Now that in itself is just <laughs> like, no, thank you. I'm sure some of our uh, Satanists. artistic yeah. creativity there. I that's love it. The art is so beautiful, the stories. But as I said, pretty much um, in general, Buddhists don't believe in this as the actual conception of the universe. There's no deity worship. It's rather just a, a way of conceptualizing the world in quite a visual and powerful way. Mm-hmm. I was say, some of our satanic friends up in Canada might be able to relate to those nine cold circles. Oh, right yes. All right. What so, are you complaining about? Like our head mistress here at study hall has done a lot worse than peck out people's eyes and boil them alive. We're not supposed to talk about that. Okay, okay. moving on, moving on, <laughs> shuffling the papers. All right. So looking at other depictions of Satan and the devil in, in other cultures, and I kind of put them in quotes because they're like the, the concepts or the literal or figurative. Tell us a bit about Kali translated from Sanskrit as she who is black or she who is death, who is often associated with death, sexuality, and violence. Well, India was one of the top destinations I wanted to see in my life. And I'm very glad I got to do so before the pandemic. Now, as you know, anytime I go to a new country, I want to check out the more taboo and devilish sides of things. So of course, Kali, the goddess of death, was my number one investigation. Now, in India, in, in, uh, among the Hindu pantheon, you have other goddesses that are more demure, elegant, and graceful, but not Kali. She has all black skin and her tongue is sticking out. Her male consort, Shiva, is where he belongs, lying on the floor, and she is stepping on him while holding up, sorry, a decapitated head with blood running down and maybe another sword in her hand. So everything about her is fierce. It's the full embodiment of Shakti, female power, which can be bloody and it can be scary. It can be destructive, but there are also these positive qualities if you look at cultures around the world, you usually don't see that good evil split, that dichotomy. Rather, all of us, as well as the deities, have parts of each of these elements within ourselves, and they can be used for beneficial purposes or destructive ones. Kali is a great example, and that's why I think a lot of feminists are drawn to her. She fully embraces the erotic and power and full expression without fear, without censorship. I think you can, and people may not understand why she's revered as the ultimate mother and a protective force until maybe you can imagine a human mother whose child is in danger. Now imagine what that woman will, the lengths she will go to, to protect that child. You would not want to ever stand in her way. Now that is the power of Kali right there. 
Yeah, I think that takes care of um, <laughs> that last question there, Al, which was specifically um, uh, Callie's relation to female empowerment. I think you answered that very well. Um, so we at uh, Satanic Study Hall love to support our gifted satanic artists, especially those with their own small businesses. Um, what's been the most creative satanic item or possession you've encountered through your exploration of the devil and other demonic worship? I know you both have covered um extensively some shops that you've definitely been to around the world but is there like one particular item that just you didn't even have to purchase but you even saw that really stuck out to you so uh la carmina and i have recently been in touch with an artist by the name of vincent castilia and if you've heard of him that's probably because of uh, not so much the content of his art which is of course amazing but the medium of his art and what Vincent does is he creates his artwork completely in human blood. He started off with his own blood. And then uh, now he does collaborations with people where he will have them uh, contribute their own blood and they can mix it together and create uh, the art. So it's amazing. There's a documentary uh, called Bloodlines, I believe, on YouTube that you can check out about him. Um, now, uh, saying this, Vincent is not uh, a Satanist per se, but obviously his uh, the subject matter and the the just the 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 medium that he chooses, you know, putting him pouring himself into his work, literally, <laughs> literally. Uh, his own blood is uh, it really resonates, and his artwork is very uh, macabre, very surreal. Uh, it features a lot of um, you know bodily. Uh, I don't want to say disfigurement, but his his. Characters often feature, you know, lost limbs or uh, atrophied limbs, things like that. It's it's really surreal and fascinating. His very first exhibit, his first major exhibit was held at the Giger Museum in Switzerland, where he actually met H.R. Uh, Giger. And, uh, you know, that was such a an honor for him. He's we have a very guy. good friend here at Study Hall who has actually been to one of the homes of, of Giger. And um, <laughs> it's always a great story whenever he he brings up that experience. He's a huge fan in, as well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, whenever Giger is in the story, it's probably going to be a good story, right? Well, it wasn't Giger. It was Giger's girlfriend at the time. Giger wasn't home, but uh, my friend was, our friend was still um, allowed into this residence. And um, <laughs> I love hearing him talk about it. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's uh, amazing. And uh, I, I believe Vincent was as well. And uh so yeah, he's he's a great guy to check out. I'm actually in the process of purchasing one of his works. Uh, Carmina, I believe you are purchasing something from as well. Yes, and he is opening up a new tattoo studio and art gallery in Florida. So that's on my list post-pandemic. I must go there to pay him a visit and check it out for myself. Yeah, just to totally um, geek out right now about art medium. It's not something, obviously, I've never, I'm, I've, I went to art school, I've never painted in blood. Um, but I've seen Vincent's work. And I will say that, I forget what, ex like, exactly what we were doing um, this one day in class, but um, someone did end up cutting themselves, not bad, but like, you know, slicing a finger. And, you know, just seeing like blood drip out on paper. And I can't even remember, I think it was just normal, um, uh, it was just normal drawing paper, but you realizing that like when blood 
comes out of you. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look red on the paper. It dries. And um, I, that comes out in Vincent's work to me, just kind of like seeing that happen and seeing the blood um, copper and, and brown a little bit. So I'd be like really interested in uh, learning more about his process and how he paints with it and gets depth and, and texture while the the blood is drying. Sorry to weird everybody out. It just occurred to me when you <laughs> no, brought up when you brought up Vincent. <laughs> Not at all. I thought maybe he moved on to having other people join in because he, you know, got tired of the passing out occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> the woozy spells. La Carmina, how about you? Any interesting um, items and uh, artifacts through your travels? Mm, usually, the most meaningful items to me are from people who became my friends over the year and who also happen to be talented designers or artists. Alex Streeter, who we mentioned before, is on our show, Satanic Show and Tell as a guest, along with his daughter, Lily Streeter, is one of them. He's the silversmith who created the pentagram uh, angel heart ring. And over the years, I've loved wearing his jewelry. He designs these things that are elegant but have a darkness to them and are influenced by everything from ancient Egypt to space creatures to Americana. I just love his visions. I have a choker pearl necklace with a skull on it and earrings with that look like dangling snakes with a pentagram in their mouths. What else? Uh, rings that look like two scorpions grabbing a Marquise cut black onks. So for me, because I love fashion and I love design, picking up important items from friends around the world that have something to do with satanic themes has been my go-to. So before we wrap everything up, I do uh, I do want to make sure all of our listeners uh, have the opportunity. Uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff um, tonight, and I want to make sure our listeners have the opportunity not only to uh, learn more, but follow up on anything that they've heard. So I guess we'll start with Carmina. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners to kind of engage, uh, follow you on social media? Do you have a website, uh, anything like that? Yes, I like to say that the meat of my work is on my own site because it's self-hosted. I own it. It's not subject to an algorithm. And it's also been updated since 2007. So that's La Carmina blog, <laughs> lacarmina.com. And if you go back in time, you can see some really funny reports. John and I have been on so many adventures over the years. Our style has changed. So you can see us in, say, 2009 going out to some fetish party or something wearing ridiculous outfits um, or traveling in Cambodia or Vietnam and elsewhere. So I would uh, encourage people to check out the site, La Carmina, but I'm also on social media since you have to be. It's at La Carmina on pretty much everything, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. But again, what is most important to me is my own site. And I'm really glad that throughout the years, I took so many pictures, documented things because things Back to the Buddhist hell, right? Things don't last. The Gothic scene in Japan is very different now. Um, travel is very different now. And I'm glad that it, I was able to capture a little moment in time. And uh, Dr. Scotland, what about you? So for me, uh, I do have uh, Facebook at Dr. John Scotland and also Twitter, uh, the same handle. And I would be happy to hear anyone reach out, ask questions, uh, get in touch. You can get in touch with me directly. Uh, 
I'm not so present on uh, social media. I, I generally tend to uh, be a little bit of a hermit and stay focused in my work, but uh, I do respond to people who get in touch with me. So I'm always happy to uh, hear from people and just communicate with like minds. It's uh, one of my favorite things to do. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And again, um, this has been amazing. Like we're almost at the two hour mark uh, and I feel like we could, I could continue. Like there were so many side questions and notes and red pen I have all over my study guide uh, <laughs> that I didn't even get a chance to ask. So um, definitely uh, would love to have both of you back on study hall. And again, uh, I want to make sure everybody is well aware uh, coming out <clears throat> in this episode, we'll be hitting the airways um before the release, unless it's fast forwarded, but Satanic Show and Tell on Satanic Temple TV. Um, I guess we'll give that one last. I just want to remind our viewers um, how to um, how to find that um, <clears throat> and when the, and basically is it. So TST, you made a very good reference uh, earlier. It was almost I think you said something about like a, almost like a cable access feel because um, that's exactly what it reminds me of is like a cable access or cable TV um, public access type um, station. It's fucking great. Um, but yeah, can you, how do, how do they, um, how do they watch it? Is satanic temple TV like a website or I don't think we ever really described it here on the podcast. Yes, that's exactly it. It is kind of like 1980s or nineties community programming. And you can find it at the satanictemple.tv. There are tons of shows there and there's free content in addition to content that you can access on demand. So per piece or by monthly subscription. Yeah, I think uh, we covered everything. Uh, as you said, there, there were so many things that uh, I wish we could elaborate on and, and that we could engage in conversations on. I mean, I know you're really a, a lot of you are aware of many of the things we were talking about and uh, have things that I would love to hear about. So, yeah, uh, well, definitely yeah, be great and, to do this again in the future. <laughs> yeah, And Dennis definitely being as um, into the body modification subject as he is and tattoos. And I'm a giant art and history nerd. I think I can say the same for Al. So we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much this was extremely educational thank you that's a whole yeah we would love that thank you yes hail both of you and stay safe in your adventures yeah and have fun started, too if i had started on the body modification we'd be here another three hours oh, that's, that's <laughs> gonna say that that could be uh, that's an episode in itself um so thanks once again to the both of you this was fucking awesome it was so good to have you stop by class and hang out with us um every every time you know i go to pick up the email or check online there's somebody new and cool and awesome and exciting reaching out to say hello uh that's interested in stopping by class so we can't thank you enough for thinking of us and uh we are so excited to see uh, Satanic Show and Tell and see what um, all the buzz is about already. And there's already buzz and it hasn't even launched yet. So it, it must be fucking awesome. Thank you both once again. Thank you. Thank you. Hail, Hail Satan. Hail, Hail Satan. Satan. Hail Satan indeed. <laughs> you know what you are? You're the Antichrist. What? Yeah, that's what you are. You are the motherfucking Antichrist. 
All right. Welcome back, everybody. And once again, that was fucking awesome. What a great conversation and experience that was. I'm so glad La Carmina and Dr. John Scutland stopped by Study Hall. Uh, we look forward to having them both back again, whether together or separate. I know Dennis was very excited. Um, and as since, um, you know, we wrapped that interview up, has been in touch with Dr. John Scotland, and we definitely would love to have him back to talk about body modification um, and, you know, tattooing, especially in the Japanese scene, um, just amongst and just subcultures in general. Um, and La Carmina, there's just, as we mentioned earlier, but when we introduced them, uh, there's just a ridiculous amount of cool shit to cover uh, with La Carmina. So it was great to have them. Um, and again, we look forward to having them both back here in class. Uh, so to take care of a couple of things, uh, we do want to kind of dive in a little bit and let you know how you can join us uh, in some of our social media communities and how you can follow and support the podcast. Uh, no, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram by uh, searching Satanic Study Hall uh, on Facebook. We also have our Facebook goat farm community, and that does have an expiration date um, as far as is being the main hub. We started with the Facebook group and because of the fucking bullshit restrictions and things that come with a Facebook group and the platform itself, um, we've kind of shifted over to Discord. So as long as we can, as much as we can help it, the Facebook goat farm group will always be there. But focus is kind of shifting as far as, you know, content and, you know, drive and group activities to our Discord server. Um, and to get the link to the Discord server, you can hit us up on any form of social media or email us at satanicstudyhall at gmail.com and we will send you the link. Um, but Discord, our goat farm community there is fantastic. Uh, a lot of work's been put in. It's so interactive. As we mentioned before with the art room, we're doing movie nights. There are literature with Lucifer contests, um, you know, crazy haikus um, involving the Morning Star and Lucifer, uh, awesome writing prompts, and just an amazing amount of support and discussion going on there. Yeah, some pretty fucking talented individuals. <laughs> the artwork and just the people coming together from across the world. I mean, Australia, Germany, Scotland, the UK, Canada, all over the States, uh, South America. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. We're building so many cool friendships and just seeing like what's out there beyond our four walls and, you know, our community. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the day is catching up on discord. We did. We had a beautiful um, woman from Brazil uh, come into the art room one Sunday night and um, she was telling us a little bit about her story. And like, that was, that was the coolest just to like be able to ask her questions about the area where she lives. Was that and, Zahara? Uh, yes. This Zahara is fantastic. Zahara, we love you. Thank you for being on the goat farm and being a supporter of the podcast, but sorry to interrupt. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. But yeah, that was her involvement in the art room and just, just funny as shit. Some of the stuff that she posts. Um, but yeah, as far as discord goes, um, again, hit us up. We'll let you, we'll let you know the link. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, at satanic sh. We have some fun on Twitter. Uh, we've been posting some facts, uh, you know, some random on this day in histories. Uh, it's been kind of fun. We're getting some good responses on there. Um, and some good interactions with other members of the satanic community. Uh, outside of that, Still not doing anything with Twitch. We still have the same old videos on YouTube, so nothing really new there. Um, hoping to change both of those things in the near future. But uh, our plates are full, and we're gonna just going to kind of keep rolling with it. Shout-outs and special thanks. Uh, I definitely want to shout-out 
Um, and there's a couple th- couple more things we're going to talk about in these shout outs. Is I want to shout out Love City Satanists and Baphomet. Things happen in Philadelphia. You know why? Because Baphomet. Things happen in Philadelphia. And as always, our friends at Misty's Coventry and Dark Art Depository, uh, we thank you for you know all your interaction on social media and your support. Um, and I think Sean might have said something about it might be time soon for another Baphomet giveaway. Uh, so oh, yeah. we're pretty excited about that. Uh, Sean gave away a Baphomet on our Patreon for, I think, our 40th subscriber. And um, I guess that's a perfect segue. Um, we've been um, really having some fun on Patreon. We're doing a couple more episodes this Thursday. Um, we kind of do, we're mixing it up. We're doing some live on Discord. And then is mixing it up like we always have been with just doing some with just us in the studio. So you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash satanic study hall. Now, like we mentioned before, we have three different tiers. One is $3.33. Other is $6.66. And one I like to call the super fucking satanic $20 a month VIP level. Uh, all the details uh, about what you get with the advancing advantages um, <laughs> in Patreon subscriptions are on our website. So check them out. Uh, $20 VIPs. You got cool stuff like one-on-one um, you know, interactions with the cast via Zoom or whatever platform you want to use. Satanic Study Hall t-shirts and access and discount codes when we launch our merchandise uh, line as well, well as some other cool shit that we're working on. Uh, Father Al, ever any special thanks or shout outs you want to put out there? Uh, just a special thanks to uh, La Carmina and Dr. Scotland for um, coming on, sharing their experiences with us. It was absolutely amazing for me personally uh, to learn about uh, Santa Muerte and, uh, and, and Japanese Satanism. So thank you both very much. And we look forward to having you back. The valedictorians up next. Yeah, I would like to say thank you to the both of them too, um, especially like the conversation about um, uh, Santa Morte with Carmina. Um, I don't know. That kind of just took it in a different direction. I didn't think that that conversation was going to go, um, but I was really interested in that. And John is just an encyclopedia of um, historical and artistic knowledge, and I absolutely adore um, any night I get to spend having a conversation with somebody who is an encyclopedia of knowledge. So thank you so much to the both of you. Um, yeah, um, thank Ian and Sarah and uh, Zahara and Melissa and Pam and anybody else who, you know, uh, pops into the art room every once in a while. It's been really fun for me. It's been really calming in this kind of like crazy transformative time in my life. Um, thank Al and Bill and Dennis and Johnny and <laughs> that's right. And Belial. No, hey, not Belial. Can't forget Belial. that little fucker. Okay. Belial, <laughs> Belial's got a new family member, Periwinkle. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start blasting him all over social media. I have him on Discord and Twitter. but Yeah, Belial. I want to thank Periwinkle. How do you feel about that, Belial? And also, once again, just like we mentioned before, uh, La Carmina and Dr. John Scotland's television show on TSTTV, Satanic Show and Tell, is coming soon. Uh, that'll be all over social media as soon as it's available. And I highly fucking recommend a subscription to TST TV. Yes, I'm marking out. There's a lot of good content on there. Uh, we are supporters and we will continue to be. Um, so hail Satan and to everybody that's involved with that project. I know there's a lot of cool shit going on with satanic show and tell. 
I can't wait to see it. Um, this has been an amazing episode as usual. The bell is about to ring. I cannot thank you all enough for hanging out with us for this two to two and a half hour journey that this probably is going to end up being. Um, but as usual, uh, we would not be here without you. And we look forward to seeing you next time in class. Can we have a satanic study hall show and tell? Like I can just stand up and you can show and tell and you can see all me. Holy shit! Hail Satan. Ah! Uh. <laughs> Class is dismissed.